As we come to God's word this morning, let us pray to him that he might help us in our time. Lord, we come to you. We do pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Oh God, as we come to worship you, even as we hear your word read and preached, I pray that we would see this Christ, that we would see Jesus, who is the Lamb, worthy I pray that you would do this even for your glory and honor as we come to know you, to love you, and to serve you more. Even this day, we pray it all for Christ's sake. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to our text this morning, found in Revelation, the fifth chapter. As you're turning there, it occurs to me that we all might need a good reminder of why we're studying Revelation, why it was written in the first place. I've heard several of you say over the past few weeks that, you know, this is a tough series, or you sure are preaching a lot on hell, or kind of seems like this is a condemning letter. It's imperative for us to remember the pastoral goal of John's writing, why he's writing this letter. G.K. Beale, New Testament scholar I quoted last week, has an excellent sentence in the beginning of his commentary. You can find it up in our library if you're interested. I have it here. He says, The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes, even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. It's to encourage us. To encourage us that God is in control. You see, we need to consider again the group to whom John is writing. These were first century Christians literally being put to death for their faith, for what they believed. Many were burned alive. Some were beheaded. Some were drowned. John's not writing to cause them further angst and grief and doubt. As Christ reveals himself, he doesn't mince words. He does warn us of the reality of coming judgment, yes. However, and that's a big however, He does so ultimately for the comfort of the believer. Jesus reveals His sovereign rule and authority over all things. And the encouragement then is that no matter how bad things may seem, no matter how unjust our world may be, Jesus is going to bring about judgment on those who oppress His people, death and Satan included. And this should be a stern warning to all who are perishing, but it should be a great comfort to God's people. And we find this at the compassionate heartbeat, as it were, of the book. Chapter 5, the literary center of the whole letter. We'll see this morning God's will, God's way, and God's worship. His will, His way, and His worship. I'll read the text for us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Do black lives matter? Do the lives of white police officers matter? Yes, they absolutely do. But why and how do they matter? Are they important because they've had their sovereignty taken from them? Important simply because they are victims or because they're a part of a minority? Yes, that's important. We should not discriminate on the basis of these kinds of things. But this isn't why their lives matter. If so, then then what about the lives of those who perpetrate such horrible violence? Do their lives matter? If we say that the first lives matter more than the second or even more than those who are offenders, we've already fallen into the trap of Satan. Our world will turn into a bloodbath of this matters more than that thing. The real answer is staring us right in the face. They all matter. Because they're humans. Because they're created in the very image of God. The problem then is death itself. You know, we don't want to talk about death. We don't like to entertain the idea of death in our culture. Shouldn't we just live peaceably with everyone and hope for the best? No. Because we're always going to hope for more. And in that vain hope, we will plant our own will over and above the will of others. Indeed, we are created for more. More than this world has to offer. More than we can get out of this broken and dying age. The real question is, why aren't we more upset by the 151,600 people who die every day? 
Why are you and I more upset for the 6,316 people who will die while we are in worship right now? God is terribly upset. And He is doing something about it. And that's what we see right here in our passage. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Notice we see right here, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. What is this fascinating scroll? What's in the hand of the Ancient of Days, the Almighty, as we've seen in Daniel chapter 7? And how will it disclose what must take place as we saw back in verse 1 of chapter 4? And I think there are several different interpretations that are pretty good, but I'm persuaded that the scroll represents God's will. It represents God's purpose for all of history, for all of time and space, His good and righteous decrees for creation for humanity. And even more than this, I think that John is actually alluding to a Roman will, to a legal document of that day and time. They were customarily sealed with seven witnesses. They were summarized in writing on the outside to prevent tampering. This certainly squares with Paul's teaching as we find it in Ephesians 1. Listen to his words there. In Him, that's in Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. See, it's God's predetermined purpose from all of time. All the legal language is there. That's why we have an inheritance in Christ. You see, God's will is His plan. It's His design for all people, for all of time, in all places. But there's a problem. As with any will, like wills today, it's sealed. It can't be undone. It can't be opened until the death of the one who owns it or until the power is transferred. So we see then in our passage a strong angel proclaiming from the heavens, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? To the great disdain of heaven and earth, no one is found. No one is found worthy. So John begins to weep loudly. Why is John so emotional over someone else's will? Why is he so distraught because of someone else's estate? Well, think about those to whom John is writing. They were being killed. Their very lives snatched from them as we've seen even this week. He's trying to comfort people who are very interested in death. Because it's a very real possibility. What happens to them then when the scroll is opened? When all that God has planned is unfolded? But there's no one there. There's no one to open it. And so he laments because he can't even look upon the contents, much less give his people hope. Let that sink in. This this thing, this scroll is the book. It's the plan for all plans. I wonder what gives your life meaning today. Where do you find the source of your identity and your hope? How are you trying to uphold and to fulfill your reputation? Think about it this way. If there's no one to open this scroll, then all of history is sealed and meaningless. 
Your life is pointless unless this scroll is opened. If this scroll is not opened, then the black lives who were taken this week are pointless and meaningless. The lives of the police officers and the innocent bystanders are meaningless. Indeed, we have no hope if this scroll is not opened. Nothing really matters. As we'll see throughout the rest of the book, if this scroll is not opened, Jesus is not worshipped as the worthy lamb. Martyrs of the faith die a futile death. Prayers of the saints are not answered. God's plan is not accomplished. The wicked are not judged. Jesus doesn't come back. There is no new heaven and new earth. God himself is not there. And we will still have all of our tears and pain and anguish from this dark world. Why is this? Because it's a will. It needs someone to execute the contents of it. And if there's no one to open it, there's no one to carry out God's directives. As Paul says elsewhere, if we have hope in this life only, even if we believe we're Christians saved in Christ, if we have hope for this life only, we are the most pitiful people in all the world. If we seek justice only for this life in this age, it's pointless. It's futile because at some point, if guns don't take lives, we still die. And just at the point of despair, when no one is found, when no one will carry out God's inheritance, we get these beautiful words. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, just at the right moment, we see Jesus show up. There is, in the midst of the throne, right in the middle of the action, there is a lamb standing. We've seen that it's God's will in this scroll, and now we see God's way. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. We need to take a few moments here to have a closer look at this lamb. First we see the marked contrast between the lion of the tribe of Judah mentioned in verse 5. Ironically, what, what is depicted as the conquering lion of Judah in Genesis 49 is miraculously transformed into the picture of a lamb. God is demonstrating that it's by weakness, that it's through defeat that He will conquer. Second, we see this same irony in the depiction of the lamb's attributes. Notice that it has seven horns. Lambs don't have horns. It's the picture of complete and perfect power that this one who is standing as slain is full of power despite His apparent weakness. We also see that he has seven eyes. It's the Spirit's all-searching power. It's the perfect knowledge of God that he sees all things. Everything is apparent and clear before him. There's nothing then that this lion lamb cannot see or know or do. But finally, very surprisingly, we see the lamb itself standing as slain. Let's pause for a moment. I think the translation is a little weak here. 
It says, as though it had been slain. The, the verbiage there is a perfect depiction that he is as slain. That what is a past reality continues in a perfected state forever. That Christ, by his death on the cross, has accomplished salvation and is still accomplishing it. That it is perfect. That he is as slain before us. And yet he's not dead. Dead things don't stand. He is standing before the presence of God. It's not a deception. It's not a smokescreen. This is the Lord of glory risen from the grave. The one who is able to conquer sin and death and hell itself. Coming back into the throne room of the Almighty. Standing for you and for me. Standing. And this stark reality, it completely transforms the definition of conquer. You and I think of conquering as the biggest, strongest army. You and I think of victory as the one who's the fastest or smartest or strongest. Jesus is overturning that definition on its head. He's saying to overcome means to be weak. To lay down your life and sacrifice. To find the victory is to accept the punishment and the pain. He's rewriting history from the perspective of the cross. Well, how does this impact our understanding of suffering that we see even today all around us? How does this change our definition of God's sovereignty? It should change everything. You see, Christ's sacrificial death wasn't an accident. It was the plan. He's slain as though slain before the foundation of the world. So great is God's love for His people that He would stop at nothing. Stop at nothing to save us. Not even His own suffering and His own death. What about your life? How do you define love? This morning, our culture certainly throws the word around a lot. I'm not sure they know what it means. How do we understand pain and heartache? Think about the context of this passage. Is this the suffering, the pain, the heartache, the defeat? Is this the result of love lost? Or is it the result of love earned? We could ask the question this way. How, how do we understand the care of God to be expressed to His people even as all of these trials and judgments begin to happen? As we'll see in chapters 6 through 22, all of these visions, how do we understand the care of God, the love of God to be expressed? We might put it simply, is, is this God's plan? Or is this His reaction to sin and to brokenness? Is God still sovereign even in suffering and judgment? We must see that these are the plan of God. We see this when Christ will take the scroll in verse 1 of chapter 6 and open it. We see immediately the, the justice and judgment of God begin to fall. But, but brothers and sisters, before we lament judgment, just like our culture Judge not, lest ye be judged. They throw it around. Before we lament judgment, let's consider what our passage is teaching us. Jesus has brought about the way of God. It is conquering. It is overcoming. But it is victory through suffering and death. Through seeming defeat. And because of this, He can take the scroll. 
He can take the scroll because he's worthy for you were slain. That's what verses 8 through 10 are explaining. This new song of salvation, this new song in Christ. All of heaven unites to give worship because Jesus is slain. Because he has ransomed for God by his blood a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is saying all lives matter. All peoples matter. Our culture says, well, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. How can we have a good and all-powerful God, an all-wise God, and yet see such pain and evil and suffering in the world? It's the classic problem of evil. Creates many doubts and stumbling blocks, even in the heart of the believer. How can we say that God is good when we see people killed in such violent ways? Beloved, the picture here is because God is patient. Because the Lamb has come and died a sacrificial death. And God is not desiring a small subset of creation. He's desiring a people to be ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation. From all the world, Christ the Lamb has thrown open the door of salvation. You see, it's a redemption without distinction. It's not a redemption without exception. God is not saying that He will redeem all peoples everywhere. It's not universalism. But it is a people from every tribe and language and nation. God is concerned for all of creation. As Peter tells us, He is patient not as we are patient. He wishes that no one would suffer. He wishes that no one would perish. He waits and waits and stays his hand because he knows that when Christ returns, it will be finished. It will be over. And there will be no second chances. There will be no more opportunities for salvation. Whoever has died on the day when Jesus returns is dead if he is not found in Christ. God has concern for all peoples. And he is patient. We see this is God's will and it's accomplished through the suffering lamb. That is God's way. And now, beloved, we see God's worship. We see the worship of the lamb. We see that Jesus has made his people, made God's people into a kingdom and to be priests and they shall reign on the earth. Why has he done this? Why is John given this vision, this amazing picture of the Son of Man standing as a lamb slain, yet the conquering line of Judah. It's specifically so that we can be made a kingdom and priests to our God and that we can reign and rule on the earth forever. You ever thought about that? Have you considered even this morning that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High? If you are in Christ, you are a prince. Or you are a princess. You are co-heirs with Christ of all the universe. You are co-rulers even with Christ. He's made us that we should rule, that we should reign on the earth. Unlike presumptive candidates of our day, this rule is fixed. It cannot be taken away. 
Indeed, we've actually already been given a job to do, and we see that in our passage. When John looks and he hears the multitude of the hosts of heaven, these myriads and myriads, millions upon millions of angels proclaiming around the throne, worthy is the Lamb. We see our job. Our job is to guard worship, to guard the character and the nature of God, to guard the gospel, to proclaim in a ruling fashion, not in weak, impotent ways. The world may think that Christianity is small and on the out. Beloved, this is a picture of something very different. We are being given a reign to rule in the world. Why does God wait? Why is God patient? Why are all His judgments not poured out at once? Why does He not bring all things to an end right now? Because He wants to accomplish His will through you and through me. We, in effect, have been given the scroll as well to carry out the love of Christ to all the world, to proclaim that all lives matter, but not just for this small inkling of an existence. That would be a lie. We matter because we're created in the very image of God. That's what we see in verses 11 through 14. We are created to worship God. John gets a a picture, a foretaste of eternity. When he looks in verse 13 and he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them proclaiming to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We are created to protect this worship. To proclaim to a a falling and dying generation that you were created for more. You're not simply created to live for 70 years. You're not simply created to cry injustice for 20 or 30 short years. You're created to cry injustice because you need eternity. God's justice needs to be meted out so that we will live with Him forever and ever. That's the picture of His kingdom. We saw it in Daniel 7. It's a kingdom that is established forever. It's a reign that will not cease. And we, we are the crown princes. We are the crown princesses. We are given an inheritance in Christ and we need to hope and to long for more. So when you come to worship, you don't come to worship for 60 minutes. You don't come to worship to hear me preach. We don't come to worship to hear beautiful music even. We come to worship to see the Lamb. To see the Lamb standing, representing a picture of all of God's mercy and love to us. We come to see eternity. To be reminded of the hope that we have of the Gospel. That we can hope for more than this life. But the way in which we accomplish that mission is not by exacting our own justice. It's not by exacting our own will, our own sovereign rule over and against other peoples. That's what we see in our world. We bring about this kingdom by laying down our lives, by giving up our rule and our reign to Him 
who is worthy to the Christ, to the Lamb. That's why we're here in worship. That's why all of creation bursts forth because Jesus has taken control of the world's destiny. I love that phrase. I read it in a commentary this week. Jesus has taken control of the world's destiny. The unrolling of this scroll doesn't change God's plan. It doesn't alter it. It fulfills it. It brings it about. I think this should help us deal with suffering and persecution in this life. In May of 2000, famous Bible scholar and preacher James Montgomery Boyce was diagnosed with cancer. A month later, he wrote these words. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you've already made it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and to move forward. And who knows what God will do. Not even a month later, he died. How does he have that assurance? How does he have that great faithfulness to God? Because he's seen the scroll unrolled. He knows what's at the end of the story. And beloved, I beg you, stay with me to see where Revelation takes us, to see the end of the scroll. Let's pray.